are entering the Freedom Hut. President Trump makes the right move and walks away from Kim Jong-un's non-offer offer in Hanoi. We'll talk about where this leaves nuclear diplomacy going forward. The aftermath of Cohen's smear session up on Capitol Hill. That's coming up. And also... The Green New Deal is supposed to create millions of jobs, they say, uh, but that's not true. We'll talk about why in just a moment. This, this is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission, or mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One make, make no mistake. America, great. you're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now... Welcome the green generation the has risen up. The other side will say it's about a job loser. It isn't. It's about jobs, jobs, jobs. It's a health issue. Clean air, clean water. It is a defense issue. All great American programs, everything from the Great Society to the New Deal, started with a vision for our future. Progressive taxation, an ultra-millionaire's tax. We can make a big down payment on a Green New Deal? Absolutely the minimum that we need to do in order to stave off planetary disaster. The idea of farting cows, the methane released from cows comes more from belching than it does farting. This is so incredible. This is such a major watershed moment. And I am so incredibly excited that we are going to transition this country into the future and we are not going to be dragged behind by our past. No, I think it is a green dream. It is. It is. The green dream is a nightmare, my friends. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. So big news of the day, of course, is there's no deal out of North, uh, no deal with the North Koreans out of Vietnam. Um, you had the testimony behind closed doors, Michael Cohen. We're, we're going to cover a lot of ground today. GDP numbers came in. They're good. Not amazing, but good. We'll talk about why. My friend Maddie Duppler, who's an expert on these things, she's a, a number super nerd, and I say that in the best possible way. Uh, she'll be joining us later on in the show to talk about what this means for the economy. How's the economy looking going into 2020? My contention is that if the economy is strong, Trump is unbeatable going into 2020. But we are due for a recession, folks. So that's not that's not going to be a done deal. And Trump is going to have to do a lot to make sure that we don't hit some kind of a cyclical bump right in time for some socialist wave to sweep. Remember, it doesn't have to sweep all of America, just... Just has to flip a few hundred thousand votes come 2020, and all of a sudden you have a President Warren or a President Sanders or a, you know you name it, and they're they're all they're all signing on to this. They're all signing on to this Green New Deal nonsense. All these presidential contenders so far, the the major ones, have said this is what they want to do. So what I did today, and we'll get into the nuclear diplomacy and what I see from what happened in North Korea. That that'll come up maybe a little bit later this hour. And I wanted to take a slightly different approach today uh, and, and, and not allow what happened yesterday to continue to go on, which is where the left determines what the narrative is, right? The left determines that we're all, because at a certain level, if there's enough saturation coverage of something, even though how much do you really even care about what Cohen said yesterday? It was really a waste of everybody's time. Not really anything new, certainly nothing of any substance or importance, and just Cohen acting like the slimy, dishonest disgrace that he is. Uh, but that was such a focus that there were a lot of other things that got pushed aside, like, for example, the nuclear diplomacy in, 
in Hanoi. And so I, I want to focus more on, on that today, very little on Cohen, but also on some of the deep dive that I did on my own. Well, I do all of this on my own, of course, but some of the deep dive into the Green New Deal and, and specifically this idea that the Green New Deal is going to be an economic boost and will create millions of new high-paying jobs for the 21st century economy. This is not new, by the way. This idea, this talking point, which is really that the center of the Democrat Party's platform right now is, is socialized medicine. They're going to call it Medicare for all, but what they want is socialized medicine. Medicare for all is just like Obamacare was a way to get there. They want socialized medicine, and they want a Green New Deal. Now, you might think, really, why such a focus on this? And amnesty, too, but they're not talking about amnesty yet. That's also coming. This was the triad of terribles from the Obama administration. First thing Obama did, Obamacare. Right? That was the very first thing he did. Second thing he tried to do is get through amnesty with that Remember that gang of eight bill and all oh, we need to do and the dreamers and DACA. And third thing was in climate change and he wasn't able to get that. But those were the those are the three dreams of the status left, because if you get those things, it's all over for limited government, conservatism, free market capitalism, all that stuff. Just it doesn't evaporate overnight, but it, it is in permanent recession. Perhaps never to come back. They know this, and that's why they focus so much on those areas. But the Green New Deal is front and center right now. Mitch McConnell, in a, he's, he's, he's a cagey character, Mitch. He knows what's up. He wants to try to force them to vote. He's not ma making them vote on it yet. He may not vote on it till before the August recess. So he wants them to have to take positions now, and then we'll see where they are on the vote later. Mitch is a smart guy. you got to give Mitch some credit. But... I wanted to look into some of the the things that are said about the Green New Deal that just strike me as either implausible or flatly untrue. And the biggest one is that it's going to create all of these jobs, uh, that there's going to be this explosion of great millions, they say, millions and millions of jobs. Well, when you look into what the real plans are of organizations that promote this uh, Green New Deal. When you look into what they're trying to do, you see that there's a tremendous amount of room for waste, fraud, nonsense. Terrible, terrible planning. And that's what this is all about, central planning. The Green New Deal allows central planning to become our way of life. Everything will be centrally planned because the environment and environmentalism affects everything that you do. The products you use, the house you live in, the way you heat your home, the way you cool your home, the way you get to work, the way you sit at work, the way everything you do is affected by this Green New Deal ideology. But when you start to break it into its component parts, and I, I read today, and I got to tell you, there's not a lot of great uh, research you'll find on the Green New Deal. One, because it, it's a They've made the concept relatively new, although we have Obama, right? To play the, This is Obama from when he was president talking about this. Play it. We will increase 
oil production here in the United States. Yes, we can drill more, but drilling is not a long-term solution to our problem, not even close. And that's why I will invest $150 billion over the next decade working in partnership with states and local governments and the private sector. We are going to invest in affordable, renewable sources of energy, wind power and solar power, and the next generation of biofuels, an investment that will lead to new industries and 5 million new jobs that pay well and cannot be outsourced. 5 million jobs that pay well and cannot be outsourced. Well, let me tell you something about Obama that you may not know. The Obama stimulus package included billions of dollars set aside for what we would call a a Green New Deal style programs. And you know what really happened? Some of these companies that are getting massive government subsidies used money to buy windmills or solar farms, uh, wind turbines or solar farms, or rather solar panels overseas and then use them for their own purposes. They weren't creating jobs here. We know from Solyndra that the economic model, remember that Solyndra, the Obama administration boondoggle, hundreds of millions of dollars of loan guarantees for Solyndra. So that just means that they can lose money. And when they lose too much money, the taxpayer fills in the gap. And that was a Department of Energy program, by the way. Uh, they, they couldn't make it work. They were losing money on all the energy they were creating. Now, now fast forward to today. So Obama had this plan, too. Obama loved this idea, and it didn't work. Now we've also seen what's happened in Europe, where they've been pursuing some of what their their own versions of the Green New Deal. And guess what? Despite enormous investments, and I hate that word investment, because you know what investment is? They're taking your money. They are taking your taxes. And when you're getting ready like me to write out a check in the next few weeks to the government to pay your taxes so that you can continue to be a free man who doesn't go to prison, remember that they want to take that and say it's an investment and give it to somebody who says they're doing you know, the work of saving the planet by creating green energy. Germany has had flat carbon emissions despite 500 in and and billion dollars of investment that they've set aside by uh, 2025 in a renewable heavy electrical grid, and they've had a 50 percent rise in electricity costs. France has a tenth the carbon emissions. This was in a piece today I saw in Quillette. It was amazing. A tenth of the carbon emissions per unit of electricity is Germany, and pays little more than half for its electricity. How through nuclear power. Nuclear power, if they're serious about clean energy and having affordable electricity, is what we should be doing. And yet the left hates nuclear power. Why? Because of the propaganda against it. Because it's not part of their belief system. Because the Green New Deal is based on a religious belief system. Nuclear doesn't, that's not clean. That's not, even though it actually is very, there's there's waste from it, but the waste is very minimal and small. And the risk of uh, nuclear, uh, some kind of a nuclear meltdown situation is very, very, very small. Nuclear power, if we were just being serious about our future when it comes to energy creation, uh, would be way more effective. But people are obsessed with solar and wind. That's what they really want. Well, there are costs to solar and wind. You can figure out what they are just by thinking through it. They estimate that wind power, which, and this would all, this is what the Green New Deal would be. 
The Green New Deal would be enormous amounts of taxpayer dollars flooding into buying land and clearing it for solar farms because that's really what you need. You need a lot of solar panels to generate a lot, enough electricity to power a, you know, a, a major town or city. They're not attractive to look at, by the way. It's not nice in the landscape. You need a lot of solar panels. Those solar panels, I would note, don't last forever. last about 20 years. We don't really know how to dispose of them. What becomes of solar panels when they're no longer really useful? There's a lot of energy expended in making them. You know that I talk about wind turbines as Cuisinart for migratory fowl, but particularly for uh, endangered species of birds, for bald eagles, for uh, you know, for all kinds of hawks and and raptors that are on the protected species list. They get chopped up by by wind turbines all the time. They estimate a million birds a year, including large, uh, you know, large birds that are protected. But you know, the environmentalists just turn a blind eye to that. Million birds a year, folks. So there is that. Uh, and, and then on this issue of the jobs, there's a a fallacy, and this is true of Democrats on a whole bunch of on a whole bunch of aspects of job creation. But here's the basics of the of the Green New Deal fallacy about job creation. They seem to think that you take money, you put it into uh, you, you you put it into building a solar farm. And that's a great thing. You're going to create a job. Well, how long does that job last? The statistics show it doesn't last very long at all. What, what is a green job? They don't even define this. You know why? Because a huge portion of the so-called jobs that are going to be created by a Green New Deal are going to be bureaucratic jobs. That's right. The administrators of our new green energy future. A lot of federal jobs, state and local jobs, people that are just pushing paper around about how wonderful our Green New Deal future is going to be. They're not going to be. We don't need human beings standing around holding up solar panels. The infrastructure to transfer this electricity from these different renewable sources is incredibly expensive. We have to put all that in. The battery revolution that we've been promised, you know, look at how Elon Musk's company is doing, folks. He's supposed to be Mr. Battery Man. The battery revolution's not here yet. It's not as simple as just you're going to charge it up, and then when it's nighttime, those solar panels are going to be just fine because they've already charged up. No, that's not how it works. The technology is not there yet. And in terms of the job creation fallacy, this the, the way that liberals approach the Green New Deal would be like saying, well, when somebody walks past a car and smashes the windshield, that's not a bad thing because then the person that sells windshields has to... You know, they, they have to go and sell the windshield to the person that needs a new one. And there are people that construct the windshield and the insurance company is going to make a payout. But the insurance company gets paid along the way. And there's all this productivity around the smashing of the windshield. Well, what the green energy people don't understand is that the money that is going into that is less productive than the money that you could or rather than the ways you could have used that money if you didn't have a smashed windshield. In this analogy, that would be fossil fuels, the windshield, if that's making sense. This whole thing is a disaster. It does not work. The science is not there. It does not create the jobs they say it will. Each job that is created is incredibly expensive. It just moves jobs out of much more efficient fossil fuel 
uh, energy production rules. It's going to create an enormous bureaucracy. It's going to allow the government to have its tentacles in every aspect of your life. The Green New Deal is a Green New Nightmare. I am telling you, the more you dig into it, it is awful. And every Democrat for president that has a serious shot right now are all officially signed on to this. We need more research on this. We need, we need more people looking into this and pulling it apart. And not just, yes, the cow fart jokes are fine. I make them too. But we need to look at how wrong they are and why they're wrong because people are going to believe this. I'm telling you, they're going to believe these lunatics. I'll be right back. So we do have the... Aftermath of what uh, was not a not yet a successful deal in Hanoi or not a successful deal in trying to get North Korea off of its nuclear footing. Uh, we'll get to that in just a moment. I'll spend some time with you to talk through because you're going to hear a lot of noise in the media about how it's a big failure for Trump. But I, I just I think that this Green New Deal thing, we I'm, I'm seeing a lack of of intellectual seriousness and pulling apart. It is worthy of being mocked, make no mistake about it. I mean, I think we should just do whole segments where Ocasio-Cortez is talking about like how we should stop eating meat because we're going to save the planet. Like, I get it, right? I mean, I do that too, fine. But when I'm looking around for, I mean, who's really tackling this issue of Green New Deal jobs, millions of jobs, they say this, what evidence do they have for this? Why don't we make them provide evidence? How will there be jobs? Will these just be jobs that are switched over from the currently productive energy economy? And what about people that are just involved in the bureaucracy that this is going to create? You know, the people that are going to measure how green the Green New Deal is. Uh, and then also, there's a selective technological optimism at work here where they just suggest that, you know, Green New Deal technology, you know, wind and solar and all this stuff is going to get better and better and better. What we've actually seen over the last particularly 15 to 20 years is that fossil fuel technology has become way more efficient. Fracking has brought about an, an oil revolution in this country. We are a global fossil fuel superpower. And right at that moment, what the left wants us to do is abandon that and embrace a massive bureaucracy that's really just a Trojan horse for socialism. And they're going to call it the Green New Deal. I'm sorry. It's the Green New Nightmare. I'm not down with it, and we're going to keep fighting it. But we'll talk about Trump and Kim coming up. They wanted to denuke certain areas, and I wanted everything. And the sanctions are there, and I didn't want to give up the sanctions unless we had a real program. Mm -hmm. And they're not ready for that, and I understand that fully. I really do. I mean, they spent a lot of time building it, and uh, that doesn't mean the world has to be happy. But I wanted them to denuke. Denuke, the president says, didn't want to give up sanctions. This is why there is no deal. Um, now, the president was very clear that this should not be seen as, as an end to the process. Right? The president was saying today that after he left uh, Hanoi, it's not like there's not going to be more follow-on conversations here and, and more to discuss, but um, the relationship will continue on and will continue with the current uh, status quo, which is that there won't be missile testing, there won't be advanced uh, 
nuclear stuff going on or ways to try to advance the nuclear program that they have. And mostly it's the missile testing, but there's other stuff that they could do, too. Um, here's what the president said about this. Play 16. We will keep the relationship. Uh, we'll see what happens over the next period of time. But uh, as you know, we got our hostages back. There's no more testing. And one of the things, importantly, that Chairman Kim promised me last night is regardless, he's not going to do testing of rockets and uh, nuclear. Not going to do testing. So, you know, I trust him and uh, I take him at his word. I hope that's true. I think it was very good, very friendly. Uh, this wasn't a walk away like you get up and walk out. No, this was very friendly. Uh, we shook hands. Saying they're not there yet. All right, he's saying that we weren't able to get it done this time, but this channel is open now and we'll see. You know, part of, of this process, and I think this is hard for us as, as Americans to consider, is the the preparation back home in North Korea. I know it's not a democracy, it's a despotism, but to prepare the people around Kim, his senior advisors, military generals, uh, the, the apparatus that Kim, it doesn't matter what despot you're talking about, there's always people that you have to have that implement your will. Right, so, you know, even if you're Prince Joffrey in Game of Thrones or King Joffrey in Game of Thrones, you know, you need the hand and, you know, you need the queen regent and you need people around you. I know I'm excited. Game of Thrones is coming back in a few weeks. You need people around you to implement your will. You know, no, no matter how authoritarian any individual may be, there has to be an, an apparatus around them to enact their will. So Kim, even if he wanted to take steps in this direction, and I, I don't know if he does or not. I haven't had a chance to talk to him. I'm that would be kind of funny, wouldn't it? Man, if I could, that would be quite an interview. You know, he did take a question from a report. This this was pretty remarkable. You know, this is not something that it's certainly not something you see every day. Uh, he did take a question. Do we do we have that? He was. Uh, oh yeah, here we go. Play thirteen. This is before the meeting. I mean, you got to hear, I've, I've just, I've never heard the guy speak before. I'll be honest with you. I mean, I've read transcripts and obviously he's not speaking in English, speaking Korean, but, uh, you know, I've never even heard his voice. It's always dubbed over, but you know, the, the, back home processes that he's going to have to uh if he look maybe this is all maybe this all is all for naught i'm not trying to rule that out you know this is the the worst regime the worst government on the planet the one that i think is the most likely to provoke a war that could go nuclear and the deprivation the the, the viciousness the sadism the slavery, the torture that the North Korean state engages in really exceeds anything anywhere else on planet Earth right now. I mean, they are number one. And you're dealing then with somebody who sits atop this, this mountain of misery and enslavement and despair. And, you know, he didn't create this system, but he's at the top of this system. You have to remember, I'm not even sure it's clear that Kim could just 
flip some switch and all of a sudden everything starts to feel a lot more normal there. The people have been propagandized to. There are a lot of people who live in such terror of the regime. They believe the regime. This is where I always tell you, you know, read Escape from Camp 14, read Aquariums of Pyongyang, and they will haunt you. I mean, those books, will they will stay with you. You know, Escape from Camp 14 is like a, a Korean version of the Gulag Archipelago. I mean, it's the, the kind of literature that affects the way that you see not just that country, but the way that you see life and the world around you. And it takes you into the real depths of human despair and misery and violence and hatred. And so, you know, make no mistake about it. North Korea is the most evil country in the world right now. I mean, you know, Iran is an evil regime, but, you know, the Iranian people are in way better shape than what you're, what's going on with North Korea. A lot of Iranians driving around in BMWs and, you know, having parties. And it's a very, very different scene, right? That's not the scene you have in, in North Korea. And part of this whole process and the reason that it's going to be phased, if it works, which it may not, because maybe he is, just, you know, he could just be an evil SOB and that's it. But at least now we're finding out, at least now Trump is trying. And when you, and, and this is another part of this that I don't think it's nearly enough analytic play. You know, you look at who the North Korean dictators have liked in the past. They like larger than life figures. You know, they like Dennis Rodman. Um, you know, Kim Jong-un, Kim Jong-il uh, liked Dennis Rodman. They love Michael Jordan. They like you know, huge American celebrities. I forget, there's some other celebrities, I remember reading about this, that the Kim dynasty really warmed to. Um, and I can't, now, the problem with, with some of the North Korea analysis you do is the North Korea jokes and memes that people make get, met, you know, get mixed in your head with, because some of the stuff that is true sounds like it can't be true. You know, like Kim Jong-un got 18 holes in one in golf in the same day and things like, you know, the, the North Korean news agency propaganda. It sounds so preposterous that it, it's like something from The Onion, but it isn't from The Onion. But Kim is going to have to go through a whole process here. It's not as straightforward as just, okay, I want our country to be a normal country. I mean, I, I think that there's a real risk that he could be, uh, you know, they could take him under house arrest and there would be somebody that, you know, you could have some kind of a palace coup and there's other members of the family, you know, who knows? Our our visibility into the real power structure in North Korea and the decision-making process is, I can guarantee you, very, very minimal. Uh, it's very hard to look into a, a place as closed off in the world as North Korea and really know who's making... I mean, our visibility into the, you know, the decision-making in France, into our own government, is limited. So you can imagine what we really know about North Korea. Um, but the reason this fell apart was sanctions. This is very important. Play 15. They wanted the sanctions lifted in their entirety, and we couldn't do that. They were willing to denuke a large portion of the areas that we wanted, but we couldn't give up all of the sanctions for that. So we continue to work, and we'll see, but we had to uh, walk away from that. I think we'll end up being very good friends with Chairman Kim and with North Korea, and I think they have tremendous potential. I've been telling everybody they have tremendous potential. Unbelievable potential, but uh, we're going to see. But it was about sanctions. I mean, they wanted sanctions lifted, but they weren't willing to do an area that we wanted. They want to lift sanctions, but, you know, that 
wasn't going to happen. If Trump had come back, I assure you, if Trump had come back from Hanoi, which is so much more important, and I know I've been saying to you, so much more important than this nonsense with Cohen on Capitol Hill yesterday, just, just goes to show you the Democrats are unserious people, a serious threat to the country, but unserious people. You know, all the saturation coverage of Cohen, all that's all the news wires everyone's talking about. Meanwhile, the president's trying to solve a war that's never even formally been ended and going on since 1951 and deal with the the greatest national security threat really in terms of poss- in terms of loss of life potential realistic national security threat that exists in the world today he's trying to tackle that and you know they just want to make jokes and make fun of him but if if he had come back from this and he had agreed to sanctions relief without a full accounting of the North Korean nuclear program and without an agreement on steps for denuclearization with verification procedures in place, I would have said Trump. Trump's getting played. I've told you I'm disappointed on where the wall is right now. The wall is not where we were led to believe it would be at this point. That doesn't mean... But see, there's a difference between it's not what I want, it's not perfect yet, and someone has failed, someone has sold us out, someone was lying. Those are not the same thing. All right, The wall isn't where it should be now. And Trump hasn't gotten as far at this point in his presidency as he should have based on the importance of the wall in his campaign rhetoric and and the size of the immigration crisis, which is only going to get worse. We'll be talking more about that, I'm sure, in the weeks ahead. But on this issue, um, the fact that he did not remove sanctions is absolutely essential. And this is where this is where the Obama administration fell into a trap because they were desperate and Obama couldn't, you know, Obama's team couldn't negotiate their way out of a paper bag. I mean, they had no idea what they were really doing because they didn't really understand the opposition. They didn't really understand who the Iranians are and what the Iranian regime is trying to do, willing to do. And there was a tremendous amount of hubris and an arrogance that was just dripping from the, you know, Ben Rhodes and the, the other chief foreign policy propagandists of the Obama administration. And they didn't want to listen to anybody else. They thought that they knew better. They were smarter. And they got they got just swindled, absolutely swindled, because now the Iranian state's getting, you know, it, well, Trump has rolled this back. But the Iranian state was on a roadway to getting richer and having a more robust nuclear program down the line that would be turnkey, ready to go. Uh, it, it gets all this relief from sanctions. We gave it pallets of cash, gave it all this money. Iranian regime hasn't changed one bit toward us. Every every bit is as uh, bellicose and as dangerous and as much of a threat to our interests in the Middle East and around the world as, as it's always been. North Korea, we sat down, or Trump, we didn't do it. Hey, here we are. Team Buck has arrived for negotiations with Kim Jong-un. No, but the President of the United States sat down with North Korea, with Kim Jong-un, and said, uh, look, let's do this. You know, the, He's right to focus on what, how much potential the country has, I would doubt. He's right to spend time extolling the, the possibilities for, for wealth and for prosperity because, you know, the, the people at the top of— Remember, I'm not saying—North Korea is never going to be Switzerland. Certainly not in our lifetime and probably not for, you know, ever, maybe a few centuries. You know, North Korea is not even going to be Japan, or South Korea anytime soon. But North Korea could be, uh, you know, like China circa 1950. 
in terms of the way it approaches things and the you know the economy or maybe china circa 1975 1950 probably wouldn't be that much better than but you know it, it could be china 30 or 40 years ago command economy uh, labor force yeah rough conditions bad stuff corruption you know it's not like this is some place that everyone else wants to emulate but you know you've got to get the power structure to go along it's not just kim even in a dictatorship it's not just the dictator and the reason i know about this is because i actually have a bunch of academic literature here on my bookshelf at home that i've read through about authoritarianism and dictatorship you know what the number one threat to dictators for the last 500 years has been it's not it's not external invasion it's not financial collapse it is a coup from somebody powerful in their inner circle number one threat for dictators or at least for the last i think 150 years i said 500 last 150 years that's the number one threat so kim jong-un goes back there and he doesn't have buy-in from his generals all of a sudden you know some second cousin of of kim's who's the you know in command of the military says you know kim's not feeling well you're not going to see him for a while we're running the show now who's going to say who's going to say anything about that so it's a process it's delicate incredibly complicated more on this when we come back why these talks have failed under bush and clinton and obama were we didn't think there was an existential threat yet now we know there is with the ability to hit a western city so trump is much more urgent and serious. And second, we had this crazy appeasing idea of China that they were on the uh, trajectory to the family of nations. And the more we appease them, the more the rich they got, the more reasonable they are. Trump doesn't buy into that. We always uh, gave up on sanctions. We said, well, God, they're eating grass, or we have to uh, be careful about the, the innocent North Korean people. But they don't rate when you're considering losing Seattle or Portland. So I think Trump brilliantly put it in Vietnam, and he's basically saying with that backdrop, this was an arch enemy of the United States. It's communist, and it's doing much better than you are. That's the inducement. And that's Victor Davis Hanson. He understands this. But why should North Korea, why should the North Korean power brokers, the decision makers, why, why should they do this? What do they get out of it? Right? Because remember, there's going to be there's going to be the possibility of external influence and they could lose their grip on power. Why? Well, you know, you can look from some other countries in the region that you still have authoritarian rule, military rule. Communist Party rule, but people are rich. People are rich. And even some of the North Korean elite, I'm sure, would like to get a little richer. And that's it's going to be in, incremental progress is, I think, what people have lost sight of here. It has to be incremental progress. There is no there is no speedy version of getting North Korea from being the hermit kingdom to reunifying with South Korea and everything being fine. And that's never going to happen. Victor Davis Hanson also just spoke more broadly to Trump's record. I want to, I mean, VDH is one of my favorites these days. Um, he really, he really gets it. Play seven. I think people admired him for getting out of the Paris Climate Accord. When you look back at it, yeah. moving the embassy uh, to Jerusalem, uh, defeating ISIS and almost an annihilating ISIS. The Iran deal, I think even its sponsors realize was flawed. I think even people realize now that NATO needed to pay more and they're, they're pledged $100 million. So I think cumulative people are saying, you know what, 
uh, if you look at the entire Trump record, especially under Secretary of State Pompeo, it's getting better and it's already good. It is. So it's get getting better. We got to hit a second hour here, team. We'll be right back. Every day I start the same way. I need a delicious cup of coffee, but I don't want to support a bunch of commie nonsense. So I drink Black Rifle coffee because Black Rifle is an all-American company and it's founded by veterans and it makes incredible coffee. So this checks off all the boxes, my friends. I drink my Black Rifle every morning. I have my whole camera crew at the Hill drinking Black Rifle. I got producers. I've even got some libs drinking Black Rifle because it's so delicious and everybody supports and loves veterans. And that's what Black Rifle is run by. This is roast to order, guaranteed fresh coffee delivered right to your door. Everybody listen to this needs to go to this address blackriflecoffee.com slash buck and you'll get 20% off whatever coffee you're drinking forget about that coffee this will get delivered to you monthly join the coffee club just go now and sign up blackriflecoffee.com slash buck for 20% off again fuel the fight for freedom at blackriflecoffee.com slash buck so it's strike one in Singapore. He didn't get a deal with Kim Jong-un. Now it's strike two in Hanoi. Once again, no deal to denuclearize North Korea, something that he staked a lot of his legacy, a lot of his presidency on. A very rough and rocky 24 hours of the president, humbled back in Washington, humbled here in Hanoi, uh, heading back to Washington empty-handed. And so I, I think when we uh, assess all of this in the hours and days and weeks ahead, I think what's going to become clear, Christiana and, and Jim, is that the president uh, staked a lot of his presidency on something that is just much more difficult than reality TV. This is not something that can be wrapped up in a season of The Apprentice. Jim Acosta is an idiot. And, and CNN should be ashamed to put him out there as their chief White House correspondent. I mean, the guy, he's just not very smart. He's just one of these classic TV zombie types who's much more worried about what kind of hair hold and spray he's using and how the camera angle looks on his jawline than anything else. And it's just an ignoramus. Isn't, isn't smart. Doesn't bring much to this. And here he is taking, taking cheap shots at the president of the United States who is legitimately trying to avert a a future a future nuclear crisis you know i mean i I could say one thing when when obama took out bin laden by giving the order that he had sat on for a long time to joint special operations command and a navy seal team went in and actually did the mission but anyway people say obama got bin laden no our seals got bin laden thank you but obama as commander-in-chief did give the order i didn't do a whole oh you know but you know, I, I don't really, it's it's not good that, you know, we got justice for 9-11 because Obama gave it. No, it was the right move. He got credit for it. There you have it, right? I mean, there are some places where partisanship really just has no place. And on North Korea nuclear diplomacy, that's where we should be. And you can just see these smug, gloating idiots in the mainstream media are are happy that Trump didn't get a deal. Happy that Trump didn't get a deal that would have not only removed the the threat of a possible major nuclear military confrontation with North. Remember, North Korea has a million million plus man standing army, has a tremendous amount of uh, artillery and um, and you know mechanized infantry. I mean, there's all kinds of 
Soviet era and then upgraded military hardware they could bring to bear, which doesn't really affect us that much. I'm not saying they're going to roll self-propelled artillery into Omaha anytime soon, but it it does affect South Korea. And we have 30,000 or so troops who are in South Korea. So there are conventional military concerns that we have to take very seriously. But, you know, that that could have been at least we could have gotten to the start of the removal of of any threat of that in the future. By the way, who's to say that North Korea doesn't just go totally wacko and invade South Korea again? Uh, you know, we 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 take this position of well, they would never do that. Well, the more you learn about North Korea, the crazier you realize it is, and the decision making apparatus there is not something that we can effectively anticipate. And if they thought that they could take enough of South Korea quickly enough that we wouldn't want to retaliate. And, you know, there's a lot of reason to believe that ideologically, at least, the North Korean leadership is aligned with that. Anyway, I mean, it's just, it's a huge problem set. North Korea is a concentration camp above ground, a mass grave below it. And the president is making a good faith effort. He really does want, yeah, he wants this for all presidents. I want there to be a degree of, of, uh, you know, individual glory seeking in a president when it comes to things like this, because that's what keeps you in the fight. That's what keeps you willing to take these risks sometimes that, you know, there's going to be an an everlasting legacy of achieving something that is truly great. You know, I want people to be motivated for themselves as well as for the greater good. I, I want everybody rowing in the same direction. So I think that Trump trying to achieve this is something that everybody should be willing to say they want. And yet you have smug Acosta saying it's much more difficult than reality TV. Uh, you know what is not that difficult? Uh, preening in front of a camera about how much you hate Trump on CNN like an idiot. Like an absolute idiot. Speaking of idiots, Bob Menendez Another a senator who what wasn't he the guy that was flying down to the Dominican Republic and there was all kinds of interesting hubbub around that Senator Menendez oh he he is the guy who his best friend Melgin was paying for his very high end lifestyle you know Melgin just ripped off Medicare and I think a sixty million dollar fraud sixty million might even been eighty million but just just ripping off a taxpayer tens of millions of dollars. That was Bob Menendez's best buddy. The only reason he didn't go to prison, Menendez didn't go to prison, is because a jury was like, well, maybe they were just friends and he wasn't actually a quid pro quo corruption situation. Well, yeah, but Menendez did lobby for some of Melgin's international babe patrol to get on the private jet and come to America and get them visas or something. I mean, Menendez should have gone to jail. All right, Menendez should have gone to jail, didn't go to jail. But on the summit, here's what he had to say. Uh, Remember, this guy sits on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Play 18. What we saw in Hanoi uh, was amateur hour with nuclear weapons at stake and the limits of reality TV diplomacy. What I worry about uh, is that uh, the president, by giving uh, Kim Jong-un the international uh, not only recognition but almost acceptance from going from pariah to an accepted uh, international leader, uh, has squandered uh, the leverage that we have. This is just classic, and I'm glad we played this audio for you. This is classic echo chamber, 
ossified foreign policy elitism thinking. Here's the reality of what has happened with North Korea. North Korea gets more advanced missile programs, more advanced in its nuclear programs, and is no closer to liberalizing or becoming a less bellicose state now than it has been in, in 30 years. It has been progressing administration after administration toward deliverable nuclear weapons atop an ICBM, and all the so-called smart set up to this point hasn't been able to do squat. And saying these things like squandering our leverage and elevating his profile. He is the leader of North Korea. He's got nuclear weapons. You know, the, the, the people that take this position of we never should have talked to Kim Jong-un, to that I say, well, we are talking to the Taliban and we're about to effectively hand Afghanistan over to the Taliban if current trends continue. So what are we supposed to do? We, we don't talk to the enemy? I mean, North Korea is an enemy state, but we're not we're not going to talk to them. What has that gotten us? It's gotten us a lot of missile firings. Hasn't helped the North Korean people. All the I'm not saying. See, this is the key. Talk, but don't concede. Obama was what can how can I make a deal? What can I do? What do I need to give you, Iran, to get a deal so that I have a foreign policy legacy? That was the Obama administration and all the so-called smart set there. Trump is saying, all right, let's discuss. Here are my terms. You won't take my terms? I'm out. I'm out. That's the way it should be. What was really the other? The other way was back-channeling with some diplomats and to get something going here, whatever. Please, you think that the bureaucrats at the State Department are going to solve this problem? Find me a problem anywhere near as high stakes and challenging as this that low-level State Department bureaucrats have been able to figure out. Please. I, I, I would really like to hear that story. Um, like this is, this is a, an outcome that's it's disappointing, but it's not a disaster. And when you understand the dynamics at play here, it's going to take time. The more that, that Trump and Kim Jong-un... You could make this argument, and I think it's a fair one to make. The more that Kim Jong-un and Trump talk and have some kind of personal relationship, the easier it would be for the North Korean propaganda apparatus, which is what we're working on here, folks, to make it seem like, well, maybe America doesn't want to, you know, eat all of our children down to the bone and and annihilate our entire country. You know, and they're not going to be fair minded about it. They're still going to say we're monsters, we're barbarians. But, you know, it can ratchet down tensions a little bit. It can't be any worse. I mean, the, the relationship between North Korea and the rest of the world can't get worse. Short of an all-out invasion. But why haven't we done an all-out invasion in North Korea? Why is North Korea the, the, the country that, even back to the earliest days of the Axis of Evil, there's been no serious effort to topple, to invade, to do any of those things? Oh, that's right, because they have nukes and Seoul is right next door and they could destroy South Korea in a day. Or, you know, do tremendous damage to South Korea in a day. So we don't have that option, all right? We don't have that option. A lot of stupid stuff coming out of the pundits. Oh, Trump, he's, he's so horrible. And, and look, I, I can handle some degree of, of criticism around whether or not it's okay to have Trump warm up to Kim Jong-un. He, you know, when he says we fell in love, and, you know, Trump says some weird things. Yeah, of course. You know, I'm not here to blow smoke. Trump, 
some of the stuff Trump says, I'm like, did he really have to say that? Come on, man, you know? But then again, I didn't beat the Democrat left-wing Hillary machine and become president of the United States when everybody said it was impossible. So I, I give the guy some leeway to do things the way he does them. Doesn't mean that I always agree, though. Doesn't mean that I say, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. Um, do I like the comment he made about how he takes Kim Jong-un at his word about Otto Warmbier? No, I don't. Uh, I don't. I, uh, you know, I, I just think that Otto was one of ours and the North Koreans acted like savages when it came to Otto. And uh, we that's not something that we should just let pass. Do I think that Trump maybe was just trying to say, you know, it's not clear to him that the decision-making about Otto was was in Kim Jong-un's hands and he doesn't want to throw away the relationship he has with Kim Jong-un unnecessarily? Maybe, but I didn't, I didn't like it. I didn't like it. I thought it was a problem. Um, and I'm not saying that what Trump has done here is perfect, but he's trying and we should all... This is the, the, the key point in all this. We should all be rooting for him because this is about more than party affiliation and partisan nonsense. This is about true national and global security, and I still have hope that Trump's going to get it done. For all of you business owners and people that rent out properties out there, you know background checks are really important. Any vetting, any due diligence that you can do, it lowers the risk for your business. And these days, running a business effectively is all about mitigating your risk. So work with the people who are the best at this in the business. Global Verification Network. Global Verification Network is certified as a veteran-owned small business, but they can handle background checks for your company in any field, any size company, and they do fantastic due diligence work for you as well for any business transactions. These are my go-to. I have used them. I know the CEO. He's a friend. I'm telling you, these are people you can go to and trust. Call 877-695-1179. That's 877 877- Six nine five one one seven nine, or go to mygvn.com. That's mygvn.com. Big news out of Israel today. Looks like uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, a, a a strong ally of the U.S. on on all matters, really on national security matters, on counterterrorism, on uh, Middle East security. Uh, Netanyahu could be in some hot water. Uh, this is a, an area where I feel like we need to bring in one of our friends who's a true expert on what's happening in Israel. We have my friend David Ifun with us now. He is the editor-in-chief of the Algaminer. David, great to have you back. Always a pleasure, Buck. So what's happening with Bibi? Well, the truth is, it certainly looks like he's in the the probably the second toughest spot he's ever been in politically throughout the course of his extensive and illustrious career. The first was back in 97 after the Hebron Accords, uh, where he was ultimately booted from office for the first time. Uh, The second round, he's held on uh, to leadership position for for much, much longer. The truth is, though, he was in trouble before the indictments uh, or the intention to indict was announced by Israel's Attorney General today, where a new party, which is formed of a collaboration of three different former chiefs of staff of the Israeli military was polling six or seven points ahead of his Likud party. And certainly this announcement today is only going to add to his troubles. Uh, Having said that, Netanyahu is a brilliant and masterful politician. And over the course of his career, always seems to find a way out of the trickiest spots. So I wouldn't be too quick to write him off. 
but he's certainly in a pickle right now. Well, tell us about this. What uh, what does he is he in trouble? I mean, what is he? What's what happened here? What did he do? Well, look, the question of of you know what the end of the legal process is going to bring for him. We're not going to know that until it all plays out. You know, there has to be there's a there has to be an indictment, and there has to be you know the, the whole the full extent of the legal process. What he's being accused of are uh, bribery and breach of trust. Uh, specifically, you know, the, 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 there are a lot of details, and there are a bunch of, of different cases. There are three different cases that he's being charged in: case one thousand, case two thousand, case four thousand, as they're known. But effectively, in exchange for better coverage from media outlets uh, and also in exchange for some various favors, jewelry, cigars, champagne, he's accused of doing political favors for certain leading business people and business oligarchs in Israel and, and one actually that's in the United States. Two of those who he's accused of helping run two of Israel's biggest media outlets. Uh, so he's accused of seeking favorable coverage in exchange for various business favors. So what do you think? I mean, how does he get out of this? And by the way, how much do you assess politics, internal politics in Israel are, are kind of, if not entirely behind these charges, uh, pushing them on a little bit? Well, the truth is there's, there's always uh, an, an element of that. And, you know, we see that in this country as well, that certainly his political opponents are much more gung-ho about things. But the attorney general who's brought these charges is seen as, you know, mostly, for the most part, a level-headed guy who actually worked for Netanyahu in the past as the cabinet secretary. That was his immediate prior job. Um, the question really, though, is going to be, because the legal process hasn't played out, it's going to be, you know, what are all the other members of his coalition, how they're going to react to this, and potential partners in a future coalition. So basically all of the right-wing parties, including those that are further to the right of Netanyahu's party, and also the ultra-Orthodox parties, uh, which make up the coalition as it stands today, have all said, you know, we're going to stand by Netanyahu, we'd be happy to, to, we're happy to stay in his government now, and we're gonna, we'd be happy to stay in his government or be a part of a future government that he would form should he win the election. So, you know, in Israel, it's not just about the party that gets the most seats. It's also about the party that has the ability to build a majority bloc, because nobody gets the majority of the Knesset seats. You know, the highest polling party now, its major competitor is polling at 35 or 36 seats. That's called the Blue and White Party, named after the Israeli flag. And his Likud party is falling between 29 and 31, 32. So he's falling a little bit behind. But what's important is not just how many seats you get. It's whether you're actually able to form a coalition. And the left-wing bloc uh, doesn't look like it's, it's passing the 61-seat threshold. And they might have trouble actually forming the coalition. So it's happened in the past that uh, the party that won the most seats actually didn't end up in government because they couldn't form the coalition that was necessary. So that's one way that Netanyahu might emerge uh, intact, I would say, uh, after this, this whole process is over. All right, well, David, you're going to have to come back and tell us when all said and done, if, if Bibi manages to maneuver out of this one again. Obviously, he's, he's close with President Trump. He's uh, considered a, a staunch ally of, of the U.S. in, in the region and, and obviously around the world. So uh, always good to talk to you, my friend. Editor-in-chief of the Algaminer, if you want to know what's going on, you need to check out 
the Algaminer. And uh, David, thank you so much for joining us, my friend. David Ifun, everybody. Always a pleasure. Team, we are going to roll into a, a quick break. We've got much more show coming up, so stay with me. A lot of people tonight are humming ding dong the witch is dead because the witch hunt the russia collusion narrative it was thrown out there over and over and over again and what happened was there was nothing there and so for this uh this unbelievable hearing today um you know there were a lot of opportunities afforded this particular witness that shouldn't have happened he had a 30-minute opening i don't remember any witness ever having a 30-minute opening it was all trying to uh, spin a narrative to start the impeachment process. His testimony was highly incriminating, explosive, a bombshell in the leads it should provide if corroborated by other witnesses and documents. Plainly, he laid out a roadmap of criminality committed by the president that needs to be followed not only by the special counsel, but by other prosecuting offices. Right now, no aspect of Trump world is not under investigation ah blumenthal denang dick there no aspect of trump world is not under investigation he really gives away the game doesn't he lets you know what this is all about this is about weaponizing the law that's what this is about that is the primary motivation here for all of this stuff that we're seeing, Russia collusion, Southern District of New York, looking at the hush payments, trying to get Trump's, ta- Trump's tax returns, all of it. But isn't it funny? You have Mark Meadows and Dick Blumenthal. They're both there at this hearing, both uh, you know, watching the same events unfold, and they come away with completely different interpretations of it. Mark Meadows comes away with the one that I obviously share because it is based in reality and logic. Uh, But Dick Blumenthal comes away with, see, everything is evidence. Everything is evidence of Trump criminality. It's kind of like the left and climate change. Everything is evidence of climate change. If it gets colder, it's because of climate change. If it gets warmer, it's because of climate change. If it stays the same, well, that's really scary because the climate should be changing. So it's evidence of climate change. Everything proves their thesis. Nothing can disprove their thesis. This is one of the most important uh, tools for debating with liberals that I've talked to you about in the past, and that is ask them what data you could give them or what, you know, what information you could provide them that would, even if just theoretically, disprove their thesis. For example, on, on climate change, it's not possible to disprove their thesis. Does, if the temperature stayed exactly where it is, would that disprove it? If it goes up, would that just, you know, they can't, there's, there's no information that you could ask them for ahead of time that would show. And by the way, even if you did, they would just then change the numbers and change the data set so that all of a sudden, oh yeah, no, that's right. There's nothing to see here. That would be their approach, right? They, they you, you cannot falsify it. It is unfalsifiable. The same thing is true with the left and all this Russia collusion stuff. And just the, the idea of President Trump's criminality. And they had the personal lawyer of the president of the United States for the last decade. I mean, they've got him over a barrel. I mean, he, he will tell them anything he can that's damaging to Trump. He'll do everything in his power 
in order to get a lesser sentence or just to be in the good graces of the Democrat left establishment now that he's going to prison and he's going to be looking for jobs when he comes out. If you can't get a criminal case based off of having the lawyer of the president when he was in his personal capacity flip on him, waive all attorney-client privilege, and just go on a mission of destruction against the president, any reasonable person would say, there's nothing here. I mean, this, this fiction that they cling to, that the payments to Stephanie Clifford and Stormy Daniels, that those are criminal activity. First of all, we're talking about campaign finance stuff. All right, we're talking about campaign finance. We're not, we're not talking about a crime crime. We're talking about what is known as malum prohibitum, not malum in se. Malum in se is something that is bad, right? Cannibalism, bad. Doesn't matter if the government says it's okay. We'll talk more about that later. Um, malum prohibitum is the government says you can't do this because we say so. We have a reason for it, but it's not something that is inherently rooted in some moral truth. Right? I mean, you could argue, even I would argue that taxes are a malum prohibitum violation. I mean, are you a bad person if you don't pay your taxes? No. If they wanted 100% of your income as taxation, should you have to pay that? Is that a moral obligation on you? I mean, that's prohibitum, right? So when you're discussing campaign finance violations, that's obviously malum prohibitum. Uh, which just means it's wrong because the state says it's wrong. Campaign finance laws change all the time. They are murky. They're opaque. And there are lots of ways you can get on the wrong side of them. All right. So with that in mind, um, the idea that this is the most important thing they could get on Trump, that this is how they're really going to nail the president of the United States by making the case that a payoff to people claiming affairs with you is only a campaign expense and not a personal expense. Because if, if it is also a personal expense, guess what? doesn't count. Uh, this, they have no case. If they had a case, they'd bring the charges. They have no case. It's not an illegal act. And I think even more importantly, it's not a disqualifying and, and immoral act. Oh, he, he, didn't, he didn't claim these as a campaign expenditure. Well, he didn't have to. So why should he? Uh, but that's the biggest thing. And they've gone after him with everything, with everything that they've got. And this is where we are so far. The collusion narrative, I would note, got crushed yesterday for anybody who was paying attention. The dossier that said that Michael Cohen was in Prague, false. The Russia... Compromat, compromising information, Russia compromat tapes of Trump and the golden showers and the beds in Moscow doesn't exist, according to Cohen. The phone call that supposedly went from uh, went from Roger Stone to Julian Assange never happened. Does anyone really believe that that would not be something the Mueller team would already know about? They've pulled all their phone records and all their emails. They know about everything. All communications they already have. Trust me, there's no way that there was some phone call to Assange that they don't know about. But look at how stupid and how easily fooled the press is. You know, the, the, the press was willing to say early on here that uh, they thought, or when was it? It was a couple months ago, earlier on, that, the, that there was a meeting between Julian Assange and Manafort at the embassy, the Ecuadorian embassy in London. Who could believe that? 
Julian Assange is among the most watched and surveilled people on planet Earth, okay? The, every major Western government that there is is keeping tabs on Julian Assange in one way or another. You think that Manafort, when he's working for the campaign, just had like a super secret meeting in an embassy, which by definition is going to have security personnel, cameras, all kinds of things in place, by definition. But the Guardian reported that the press is nuts on this one. And what they really can't do, because for a lot of them, this is, you know, their life's work isn't so much bringing the public the truth, but it's creating for a lot of journos, journalists, their life's work is creating the perception of themselves as important, important uh, purveyors of, of truth and, the, and constructing a narrative that is what's best for the country and really best for the world. They care more about the world than about America. And they can't handle the recognition that would come along with the collapse of the Russian narrative that they aren't, the journalists aren't the people they think they are, that they're actually just partisan clowns, that they're activists with website or, you know, TV show access. That's it. There's no particular skill set they bring to bear. There's no, uh, no great wisdom or expertise. They're just the little, the little peddlers of stories that favor the left and the Democrats. And they've just they've done everything in their power to destroy a presidency in order to, you know, prop this prop this whole left wing edifice up. So, you know, I, I think that what happened yesterday overall was a waste of time, but it, it was able to show us a few important things about the collusion narrative, namely that anybody who still thinks that there was collusion is just you you will never be able to convince them otherwise. You will never be able to convince someone that uh, collusion did not happen if they still believe that it happened because it's it's like climate change. It's now collusion has become really its own religious belief. Collusion has turned into uh, a a rallying cry for the left that they will never give up on. So you know I, I find it troubling but unfortunately unsurprising. We have one through ten for the people. Uh, the, the one is the cleanup government. Two is the infrastructure bill. Three is prescription drugs that lower the cost of prescription. Four is the Voting Rights Act. Five is the Equality Act. Six is the Dream Act. Seven is Paycheck Fairs. Eight is today, H.R. 8. Nine will be a climate bill. And then uh, we have 10 reserved for something special. That sounds super ominous coming from Nancy Pelosi. I can't say I know what that is, but that was the Speaker of the House giving you their legislative priorities. And I would just note that, uh, you know, I, I I heard that list and a lot of those things. I, I First of all, you think, what does that even mean? Um, and the Paycheck Fairness Act, how is that going to be? How is that going to be implemented? But beyond that, how much of that do I even think is a good idea under any circumstance? I think the answer is very, very little of it. Obviously, there's climate change in there. Uh, prescription drug coverage. I mean, that's one place where the left and the right can come together on, on something like a, a bipartisan basis. But, you know, prescription drug coverage, that, that is a problem of really regulation and crony capitalism. All right. Uh, that, that is that is what's going on. So you have the prescription drug companies that use the government in order to uh, 
create barriers to entry and competition, and that's just wrong. It is just wrong. Um, and, you know, that's why I think that when we talk about how to make these things better, people say the free market has failed. Look at prescription drugs. I always say, well, but there is no free market in prescription drugs. Even the basic protections you would expect for intellectual property, they always extend it, and there are all kinds of games. Uh, and, and our prescription drug costs are too high in this country. They just are, and it's because the drug companies are greedy. And if you look at the, the stats on how much the prices have gone up and what they're doing with this stuff, uh, re remember, intellectual property protection is, is part of, it, it is not the fundamental basis for our society, right? We, we do this to incentivize people but there's, you do not have a fundamental right, for example, to in perpetuity be the only person who can create a life-saving drug. You have a period of time where you get to create that, but you know, society does get to weigh in here at some, at some level too, especially when you think of all the regulations that are in place that prevent competing drugs and the money involved in all this stuff. It's not as simple as just whatever I want is what I'm going to do. Um, but Pelosi's whole agenda there and that should really rally you in favor of, you know, making sure that we don't allow these people to be in power because I promise you it's just going to get worse and worse. Um, one thing that I wanted to bring up today, and I wasn't sure how much you'd care, but uh, Justin Trudeau, I'll talk to you about it a little bit. Justin Trudeau is someone that you no doubt know about because he is the Prime Minister of um, Canada. Oh, Canada. And our friend up in uh, Canada, Ezra Levant, who I've uh, done his shows with back in the day and when they used to have the Sun News Network. I really like that network. Uh, he laid out how in this country we have a fake corruption scandal going on with how Trump is so bad he's going to go to prison. It looks like Justin Trudeau is probably uh, all donezo. Maybe he can fake falling downstairs again to make all the ladies swoon, eh? Justin Trudeau, he's, very, uh, he's a very sexy man. Here's what Ezra says about what's going on with the Canadian PM. It looks like he's in big, big trouble. Quote, for my American and British friends, Canada's Justin Trudeau is done. He might try to fight on. I personally think he's too damaged. He's irreparably damaged. Here's what's happened in a few short tweets. Trudeau was detonated by his former Attorney General Jody Wilson-Raybould, Canada's first Aboriginal Attorney General. She just testified in Parliament in meticulous detail how Trudeau and his staff tried to get her to drop criminal charges against a corrupt company that he liked. She refused to bend the law for Trudeau's cronies. But they didn't stop. Trudeau, his chief of staff, his principal secretary, or even the finance minister. They met, they met her ten times, phoned her ten more, trying to get the charges dropped. She wouldn't. So Trudeau fired her as attorney general. The story leaked out earlier this month, but it was all anonymous sources. The former attorney general herself didn't say a word, saying she was bound by attorney-client privilege and cabinet confidences. She was effectively gagged, so Trudeau was the only one talking. Trudeau took advantage of her enforced silence to claim she supported him and everything was fine. After all, when she fired her AG, he appointed her to the minor post of veterans minister. When she heard him make that boast, she quit as veterans minister. He was shocked. Then suddenly, Gerald Butts, Trudeau's right-hand man, his best friend since college, resigned, claiming he had done nothing wrong. 
which is odd. It looked like a compromise. Butts left. So Wilson Raybould met with the cabinet and the again. And then finally today, she testified in great detail exactly who pressured her, exactly when. She named names, including the prime minister herself. Yep. That, end quote there, folks, that is what obstruction looks like, folks. Calls and calls and calls. Pressure and more pressure and more pressure. Drop the criminal charges. That's what obstruction looks like. Not, well, I hope you can look your way to, you know, letting, you know, letting things go with this guy that served his country for 30 years, but, you know, your call. That's not obstruction. All right, so, you know, here we have a textbook case in Canada of obstructing the judicial process by the prime minister. By the way, it's a 10-year possible prison sentence in Canada. I didn't realize Canada, man, you guys don't mess around with your criminal code. I always thought, I always thought prison in Canada was like, a hey, less maple syrup and less free weed for you, eh? But no, apparently in Canada, they send you to prison prison. Um, but yeah, Trudeau looking like he's out. Snippy.com. So much nonsense from the other social media platforms out there. You already know they're banning conservatives. They're shadow banning. They're putting suspensions out there for, oh, I don't know, talking about how liberals should learn to code. It's crazy what's happening. That's why you need a place where you know there will be no nonsense and you can share your thoughts and opinions. Snippy.com. If you looked at Snippy.com before and left, you need to look again. Thousands of my listeners have already joined Snippy.com, and right now they're expressing their opinions and getting all kinds of fiery conversations going. Snippy is an entirely unbiased social media platform. It's all about conversation and community. No suppression from left-wing administrators. Join the conservative alternative on social media. All right, updated user interface and exciting new features, snippy.com. Again, snippy.com. It is your new alternative social media. Check Snippy out today. The economy is something that folks care about. We all know that, right? The economy gets people to pay attention usually when the numbers come out, at least somewhat. Well, we had some numbers today about GDP growth last year. And some people were saying that it's not a good story for the president. U.S. economy grew at 2.9% in 2018. What does that mean? What can we say about this vis-a-vis other presidents? We got the lady herself to join us now, Ms. Maddie Dupler, senior fellow at NPU, president of Forward Strategies, known to some of her favorite people as Dupples. Maddie, great to have you on. (laughs) Known to, to you as Duffles. You're the only person who calls me that back. <laughs> well, well now, now it's just you, me, and a few hundred thousand people across America. So <laughs> good times, good times. So now, friends. Exactly, just friends. So, so tell me, Maddie, uh, what, 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 are we, what should we make of these numbers? Because I have a feeling that some of my lib friends tomorrow are going to be giving me a hard time saying, blah, blah, Trump's not the builder he said he was. What do you say? Exactly right. Okay, so this morning what we got was the – Data on GDP growth for the fourth quarter. This was delayed because of the government shutdown. Normally, we see this data in January. It was delayed until now. So we'll see a revision on these actually next month as well. But what we saw was a 2.6% GDP growth for the fourth quarter. I'm going to walk through a couple different numbers because it's important that people understand what the full picture is of the data we saw today. 2.6% for the fourth quarter. That was up 
from 2.2% that economists thought we would see for fourth quarter growth. You remember the fourth quarter was a little volatile, had some craziness going on in the stock market. Of course, trade tensions with China persist. Uh, and housing has been down for most of the year. So the economists were expecting that we thought we would see a bigger dip in Q4 than ultimately we did. But what that means for the entire year, since that's the last quarterly data we're getting for 2018, is that the overall annual average growth for 2018 was 2.9%. Pretty darn good. That is a good pace for the economy to be humming along. Now, detractors, of course, will say, hey, President Trump said we'd be at 3% growth. Uh, where, where is that growth? Well, you're one-tenth of a percentage of point off if you're looking at the average rate. But if you also look at fourth quarter growth, growth measured from the fourth quarter of 2017, then it's 3.1% is what we're looking at for the growth for that time period. And economists do both these things. They look at the average annual growth and they look at quarter-to-quarter growth to assess the health of the economy. So it's both true that Trump has got 3% growth for 2018 and both not true (laughs) that that he was able to merit out 3% growth for 2018. But even in that context, 2.9% or 3.1%, that's a pretty strong number for the U.S. economy, particularly when we're looking at a global slowdown in growth with some of our closest allies, allies and, of course, with some of the biggest economies in the world, China being number one. Now, how does this, of course, I care most about America and how the economy is doing for America, but if we're going to line up How Trump is doing so far in terms of GDP growth with Obama and all of the socialists around him. How does this actually how does this actually go? Tell me about the number. The the average rate of uh, growth. So that's that average number each year during the recovery. So during the President Obama's reign, I should say reign. But, you know, that's how we treat our presidents now. During President Obama, when he was in office. Uh, that was 2.2%. And if you recall, when President Trump released his first budget, he was saying that he would get to 3% growth for these last couple of years. And all of the luminaries on the left came out to say, that's impossible. There's no way we'll see 3% growth. That's a fantasy. That's crazy. 3% is outrageous because they, of course, were so used to this new normal of 1.7%, 2% growth every quarter. So, and I will put an aside there that President Obama's budget called for 4% growth, even though we were in the middle of a contraction. He said that that was possible, and apparently these guys weren't skeptical then. But 3% growth during expansion to them was just lunacy. So fast forward a little bit to today, where we now see that we're at or above 3% for the year. It's a pretty darn good number. It reflects strength in the economy that we certainly haven't seen throughout the rest of this recovery. Uh, And, you know, there's a lot of debate about who gets the credit for that. I think it's less important to talk about who gets the credit for that and talk a little bit, bit more about what lessons can be learned from this. There's been a lot of discussion on Twitter today with people thinking they're dunking on the president. Uh, by arguing, well, Obama had a a fourth quarter growth number that was better than this one. He had a three point, I think, eight percent growth number in the fourth quarter of 2015, which is true. He had a great uh, growth number in in, in 2015, the fourth quarter. Uh, But it needs to also be stated that Obama in 2013 signed a massive tax cut into law, uh, namely the extension of the Bush tax cuts, a majority of those were made permanent by Democrats and Republicans in Congress, and then President Obama signing that into law. And uh, later that year in 2015, he also signed the PATH Act, which was a number of tax extenders, which were also a tax cut. 
so for people to say that this these numbers somehow reflect some kind of um, uh, latency or deficiency in uh, the ta- in the changes that have been made to tax code under Trump, and then to cite 2015 as an understanding of that. Uh, is to not understand your history of what's been happening in Washington over the past several years, which is that we've had a slow um, creep towards better tax policy, one that was expedited immensely by the passage of the Tax Cut and Jobs Act in 2017. One thing I've known for a while from both academic time as well as uh, being in the media, Maddie, is that economists can't predict squat. Uh, but I am yeah. seeing today people saying that, well, this is as good as it's going to be, right? That's another way of, of taking a taking a, a swipe at Trump here. Uh, what what do you I don't listen to economists, but I listen to Maddie. What do you think about <laughs> what we should expect for 2019 and going into the election? I mean, have we felt the full lift from the tax cuts? Uh, you know, are there any other reasons to think that things mm-hmm. could get better? Or are you expecting kind of status quo? What do you think? Well, what we have seen both in today's data dump, but uh, the data that we've seen over the last several months and certainly for the remainder of 2018 is that a lot of important metrics that proponents of tax reform had said would be affected by tax reform are showing up. And what I mean by that is business investment, capital expenditures, the kind of spending you want to see in an economy that will benefit not just businesses, but people up and down the income ladder that's happening. Uh, we saw that today with business investment continuing to rise in the data that we saw this morning. Uh, but over the course of last year, you saw the S&P, the companies in the S&P had their fourth highest, I think, CapEx year uh, since we've been tracking that kind of data. What we're seeing is businesses responding to a competitive environment that they hadn't expected that they would have and that they hadn't experienced in the recent past. So as long as the competitive nature of the U.S. economy and that both tax cuts and deregulation continues, that kind of activity will certainly continue. There are a number of factors that kind of hang out there in the balance as uh, economic question marks. Uh, the trade discussion between the China and the United States is certainly one of them. Um, I'm becoming increasingly worried that the president not seeing enough movement on the conversation with China will move instead to implement new tariffs, potentially targeted this time at the EU. Uh, tariffs are taxes, and they are paid by Americans on consumer products. And that has a massive effect on our economy because we are a consumer-driven economy. 70% of our GDP comes from consumer spending. So if the health of the consumer starts to be threatened, that's when I start to worry. Overall, Buck, I'm an eternal optimist. Uh, but I really think that it's important that we protect the American consumer in a way that allows them to benefit from the competitive nature, the competitive environment that has been fostered for businesses here in the United States, uh, and in a way that they can do that with longevity without concern that it'll be short-lived. And I will also say that when it comes to tax cuts, uh, you know, what the changes that were made in the code in 2017 are not permanent. They will start to uh, start to change in 2022, and the individual tax side of the code will change significantly in 2025. Now, that, of course, is a long runway to get something done. But if we don't have a conversation in Congress uh, for how to do that, that certainly can start increasing anxiety, uh, and we'll have downward pressure on the economy for sure. Well, you know, Maddie, I, I feel a little better now. So thank you for all that. You know, That's you know, what I'm here for, Buck. Uh, you know, I, I feel like we're all going to be okay because Maddie says it's all going to be all right. Maddie Dupler, everybody. Uh, Maddie, aren't you in on Rising tomorrow? 
I sure am. I'm subbing for the one and only Buck Sexton. I will be on the Hill TV hosting Rising with Crystal Ball. There you go. It's ladies, well, not ladies night, but ladies morning on Rising. Ladies morning, which is even better because when we're caffeinated, we're even more dangerous. There you go. Maddie Duppler, see you tomorrow. Hill.tv slash Rising. Senior fellow NPU, President Forward Strategies. Ms. Duppelsworth, great to have you on. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thanks, bye. Good to see you. Team, we'll be right back. AMAC.US slash buck. Just remember that for a moment, amac.us slash buck, because you've probably heard of the AARP. It's an organization for seniors, but don't join the AARP. Join an organization where your values are reflected in what they're trying to accomplish, where they support what you support. That's AMAC, all right? AMAC is the place for you. It was founded by an Air Force veteran, and it's an organization for seniors that advocates for border protection, fixing Social Security, and it's got over 1.5 million members. So if you are a senior or if you, uh, one of your family members or friends is a senior and they think like you do, you should get them to join AMAC. Stand with AMAC as they fight the good fight. Become a member today. The benefits are great. The cause is even greater. Join right now at amac.us slash buck. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S slash buck. AMAC is better, better for you, better for America. There's a pickup from yesterday from the, the Cohen hearing. You know, today's Cohen hearing was behind closed doors. And, it, you know, yesterday was, was, wasn't really that important. I mean, the media was so fixated on it that I tried to pull out the worthwhile moments. But by and large, it was, I think, a, a waste of almost everybody involved's time except for Democrats who are delusional about collusion and about how Trump's going to prison and they're going to own orange man Trump and Trump is bad and all the lunacy from the left about all things Trump. But there was an exchange that I didn't get to yesterday that I felt we should at least spend a moment on today with this uh, new congresswoman, uh, Rashida Tlaib. And here's the, the basic backstory is that uh, Mark Cummings brought in Lynn Patton. Uh, to speak on behalf of Trump because people were, well, obviously the Democrats were trying to run with the narrative and use Cohen as a means of bringing it home that Trump is such a racist. Well, this things got kind of testy yesterday, and I didn't get to this, and I just wanted to take a moment to bring it to your attention. This is this, Tlaib, who, by the way, is a, said all kinds of anti-Semitic stuff, and she's one of these new radical lefty congresswomen that the progressives are all about, but, you know, she's not impressive and doesn't seem very nice and this was way out of line play clip one just to make a note mr chairman just because someone has a person of color a black person working for them does not mean they aren't racist and it is insensitive that someone even say it's the fact that someone would actually use a prop a black woman in this chamber in this committee is alone racist in itself. Donald Trump is setting Mr. Precedent. Chairman, I ask I, that her words Donald be Trump taken down. President, I reclaim my time. I ask that her words, when she's referring to an individual member of this body, be taken down and stricken from the record. I'm sure she didn't intend to do this, but if anyone knows my record as it relates, it should be you, Mr. Chairman. Chairman, I, I, I would like to... Hold on. I want the words read no, no, back. No, 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 no. I'm just saying... That's what I believe to have happened. And if as a person of color in this committee, that's how I felt at that moment. And I wanted to express that. But I am not calling the gentleman, um, Mr. Meadows, a racist for doing so. I'm saying that in itself, it is a racist act. Oh, I'm not calling him a racist. He's just he just did a racist thing. 
This is this new left-wing loon, Rashida Tlaib, in Congress. Also, she refers to herself as a person of color. You know, uh, I, I, I think that people get to play, start playing a little fast and loose here with, you know, African-Americans' history of, of legalized discrimination against them and, and Jim Crow and slavery, that very real and very painful history. But that doesn't translate into, oh, well, I, you know, I, I'm from Lebanon, so I'm a person of color, too, or I'm from Jordan, or I'm from, you know, uh, I mean, I'm sorry. I, I think that people are a little too quick to play that card. It's like, no, 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 no. You know, uh, you know if you're from Turkey, I, I don't want to hear about how oppressed you are, all right? I, I think that we need to start drawing some lines on this stuff. But even more importantly, that she would refer to a black woman who is in Congress to or who showed up to Congress to speak on behalf of the president, refer to as a prop and say that her very presence is racist. But this is really the it's such a stupid thing to say and a horrible thing to say. But this is the left wing mentality, which is that even, you know, if you don't have a person of color speak on your behalf, well, then you're racist. If you have a person of color who does speak on your behalf, then you're racist because you're using a person of color to speak for you, you stupid racist. Right. That's what they do. This is why when people criticize the Trump White House for not having more people of color, I always say, well, remember when Condoleezza Rice was the national security advisor for the Bush administration and then secretary of state? Did did anybody ever give the administration credit for that? And Colin Powell was national security or secretary of state. Uh, Anyone ever give credit for that? No, of course not. Conservatives don't get credit for it. Then they're just then we just get uh, bashed for using, quote, a token. Right. That's what they will say. Mark Meadows, by the way, he was fiery about this. He, he responded to it. Play clip two. Mr. Chairman, there's nothing more personal to me than my relationship. My nieces and nephews are people of color. Not many people know that. You know that, Mr. Mr. Chairman. And to indicate that I asked someone who is a personal friend of the, the Trump family, who has worked for him, who knows this particular individual, that she's coming in to be a prop, it's racist to suggest that I ask her to come in here for that reason. Mr. Meadows, you know, uh, and of all the people on this committee, uh, I've said it and got in trouble for it, that you're one of my best friends. I know that shocks a lot of people. And and likewise, Mr. Yeah, Chairman. but you are. And I would do, and I could see and feel your pain. We no, just straighten this Mr. up. Chairman, and, and to my colleague, Mr. Meadows, that was not my intention. And I do apologize if that's what it sounded like. But I said someone in general. Uh-uh, nice try on the walk back there. Look, give, we are conservatives. We are principled. Give credit where it is due. Elijah Cummings stepped up and did the right thing there. Mark Meadows is his friend. Mark Meadows is being called a racist by a Democrat for no good reason whatsoever. And Cummings was like, no, nah, Mark is my Mark is my friend. He's my buddy. I, I, I it was the most uh, it was honestly the most impressive thing I've ever seen Elijah Cummings do because he is going to get a lot of heat from that. But but good for him for doing the right thing. Whenever we see people and it's important, especially in this era of zero sum politics, whenever we see someone who does the right thing, and you really know it's the right thing, regardless of party affiliation, you've got to say that that thing they did, I'm not saying you have to agree with that person or join them and, or, you know, whatever, but that thing that they did, 
You've got to say it's the right thing, and you've got to give credit where it's due to people who do it. So Elijah Cummings stepped up. And then Lynn Patton, who was the person at, at, at issue here, the person of color, who was there to speak on behalf of the president, she spoke. Play three. Why does she take the word of a self-confessed perjurer and criminally convicted white man over a black female who's highly educated? That's more racist um, than being put up there as a quote-unquote prop. Yep. Meanwhile, Don Lemon tried to justify to leave. Play clip four. There's nothing more personal to me than my relationship. My nieces and nephews are people of color. So look, the congressman obviously loves his family. You saw how emotional he was there. But honestly, that is just not the point. It's not the no, point it is that the you point, have Don. loved ones who are people of color. It's not the point that you, you've hired a person of color. It's not the point that some of your best friends are people of color. This is what... Especially people of color try to get people to understand no, no, all the time. No, 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 no. Okay? no. I mean, we're, we're done with Don Lemon anyway here. No, no. How you treat people is what matters, not what party, what political affiliation you have. That doesn't mean you are or are not racist. How do you treat people, Don? Mark Meadows obviously take his, takes it very personally because he treats people of color as people. We'll be right back. I keep coming up with extreme scenarios where I show you where the left is going or, or I show you what the logical ends of a position that the progressives take is going to be. And, and I do it to illustrate a point, but then it's only a matter of time before that is the reality. As in, I say, this is so, this left-wing idea is so crazy that next thing you know, they're going to be saying X, and then give it about a six-month lag time, and that's actually what they're saying. You know, so uh, I'm, I'm having a hard time you know, keeping up with how crazy the left is because my examples of how much crazier they're going to be keep coming true. So the extremes are no longer used to prove a point about the flaws in their logic. The extremes that I'm identifying are just waypoints on their progress into the depths of insane town. And here is a perfect example of that. An article in academia.edu, um, which is a clearinghouse for academic papers, from Juna Reisenen, that's the closest I can get to Norwegian, University of Oslo, and it is a moral case for legal age change. And let me just, this is a, this is a peer-reviewed and published academic article at the University of Oslo, which I hear is lovely this time of year if you like skiing to class. Uh, University of Oslo is, uh, you know, oh, also the also Alto University in Finland, which I hear they have a great program in snow cone making. Uh, but here here's the piece. A moral case for legal age change. Should a person who feels his legal age does not correspond with his experienced age be allowed to change his legal age. In this paper, I argue that in some cases, people should be allowed to change their legal age. Such cases would be when, one, the person genuinely feels his age differs significantly from his chronological age, and two, 
the person's biological age is recognized to be significantly different than his chronological age. And three, age change would likely prevent, stop, or reduce ageism or discrimination he would otherwise face. I mean, does it get does it get much much nuttier than this? There's a guy who is suing. I, I forget where, but the, you know, look what happens in Europe. It's always just they're further down the socialism and progressivism insanity uh, pathway than we are. But it is just a matter of time before we find ourselves faced with the same problems that they have had or that they are having. And I know that there's a guy who's suing right now in Europe. Um, in Europe because he says that he should be allowed to change his age and they won't let him. But just think about this. You know, think about the ways this could be abused. I mean, you know, I, I don't know. You don't have to get very creative before you realize there's problems here. Um, but the the notion that legal age is a cause for discrimination and that also somebody's psychology can overcome how society treats the physical reality of who they are uh, this just goes to show you that transgenderism, which is now not just embraced, but it is dogmatically worshipped on the left. Transgenderism has now opened the door very wide to transracialism. I don't think I mean, look at Elizabeth Warren. Right. But I, you know, I don't think I'm white. I think I'm actually from Papua New Guinea and should be treated as a Pacific Islander. Uh, and now trans ageism. You're you're going to see more of this because liberal intellectual types are not necessarily real intellectuals, but you know posers in the universities are going to see this as a new frontier to make the argument against rationality. Because ultimately, what the left likes to do as as part of its relativistic approach to all things is to find a way to undermine facts and logic in their pursuit of power. Team Buck, it's time for Roll Call. Roll Call time, everybody. Remember that tomorrow... I will be, uh, that's Friday, I'll be at CPAC at the Gaylord International Convention Center in Maryland. Yes, that is the name of the place. And I'll be giving a speech at 8.45, I should say a debate, not a speech, uh, having a debate at 8.45 a.m. on Syria, and then I'm moderating a panel tomorrow evening at CPAC, I think around 6 or 6.30 on cyber warfare and election integrity. It's going to be wonky, but should be very interesting. Uh, so if you are in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area, please, please come by CPAC. You'll be able to find me. I'll be the guy wandering around in boat shoes with the side swoop uh, that you have all come to know and hopefully at least are amused by. Um, so, yes, please do come by and say what's up. And Ben Weingarten is going to be in for me tomorrow on radio because I can't get to CPAC, do all the CPAC stuff, moderate the panel and do the show. So I'm basically at CPAC tomorrow for the day but ben does a great job here on the show he's already lining up guests and it's going to be a really really solid outing for mr weingarten as always uh, and he, he gets psyched i mean he loves he loves team buck and he is always really enthusiastic about being a part of what we do here in the hut so make sure you tune into ben he's going to lay it down 
Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. If you want in on this roll call action. Action. It's fun to say. Um, Robin writes, follow up on family leave. I 100% agree it shouldn't be regulated by the government. I'm a self-employed mother of five. Wow, Robin. I took eight weeks off with zero income and four more with part-time. It required planning, sacrifice, and a good support network. It was so very well worth it. I will say that when I went through my miscarriage, I was given three days off from my employer at the time. That was generous by industry standards, but not nearly enough. Time off without pay was not permitted. Um, again, shouldn't be government mandated, but it should be a conversation our society is exploring together. Look, Robin, I totally agree. I, I think that family leave should be something that is discussed as a um, employee benefit right up front, the same way that you would discuss uh, what your health care plan is, what your 401k is. But it has to be thought of as a benefit, because if it's a government mandate, it is very likely that it will put undue strain on a lot of businesses. And there will, just as in our discussion of green energy, there are unforeseen and even sometimes unforeseeable consequences of government intrusion into market activity. Caroline, sweet Caroline. Everybody, everybody knows that that's the song that they put on at every bar in America at about... Two o'clock in the morning. It's not the last song, but it's the song they put on after Bon Jovi living on a prayer, which comes on around 1.30, when everyone's like, ah, we're halfway there. Ah. Ever likes to ever likes to just just scream living on a prayer at you know twelve thirty, you know, midnight around there. When they're really good and lit, that's when they get the Bon Jovi. But Sweet Caroline comes on later on. Sweet Caroline is kind of when you gotta make the all right, how am I going to get home safely? Do I need to call a cab? You know, those are the those are the thoughts that come after Sweet Caroline. It's just, it's pretty much when the lights come on, you look around, you're like, what have I done with my night? Uh, oh, sorry, Caroline actually wanted to say some things. Um, hold on a second. I share outrage uh, with people. Well, hold on, Caroline, let, let me come back to this one. TJ, sorry, Caroline, I lost your, uh, I lost my, uh, wait, why is it? The computer is not cooperating here, guys. I'm sorry. Sometimes it freezes up on me. I sound like one of these old people. It's like, the VCR won't work. Somebody make my VCR work. Kimberly writes, I agree with everyone else. Your Trey Gowdy is not very good. You're not very good at doing a Southern draw. Keep practicing. Ouch. But Kimberly, what if I'm talking about like just... <laughs> All right, no, you hate it. You hate it. I don't want to. All right, I, I give. I give. Uh, my, my Trey Gowdy has been voted off the island. Trey does not have the speaking torch on the show. I will. I will back off of the Trey Gowdy impersonations. Mark, are you sure? But maybe I can get better. No, nope, no Trey. No. The people have spoken. Brian writes, Buck. Wow. Watched your and Crystal's interview with the Sunrise co-founder. You didn't let her off with a free pass, and it's a testament to your TV show. Very entertaining and would love to know the post-show commentary. Say, I have a bachelor or science degree in electronic engineering. Does that make me an expert to indoctrinate my kids, nieces, nephews, and other family members with Marxist political narratives? You know, because science. Yeah, Brian, I... 
I am rarely surprised by the extremism of the left. But for somebody who is a an adult, roughly around my age, maybe a little younger, probably about you know 30, I would say, who will look me in the eye and not have an immediate answer to, should 10-year-olds be able to vote? This would be like me asking somebody, are, do you think that it's a good thing that cannibalism is outlawed? You shouldn't have to think about that one, right? It's, it's good that we are not okay with cannibalism and it is against the law. Cannibalism should be outlawed. That shouldn't be a, that shouldn't be a, a, a stumper, you know, one that, one that gets you stumped. And it's the same thing with should a 10-year-old be able to vote, you know? Those of you who are Ghostbusters fan know when someone asks you if you're a god, you say yes. When someone asks you if 10-year-olds can vote, you say no. You don't say, I need to think on that one a little bit. I don't have the answer. And that was where the extremism really came out. You know, I, I try on, on Rising. I have to practice because I don't. it's not a platform like some of the conservative cable news shows where I can really just hammer at somebody if I want to. I have to share the stage and share the airtime with my liberal co-host. So I have to just get in with pointed questions. I can't dominate and, and hound and do some of the things. You know, I can't O'Reilly anybody on Rising. Those of you who used to watch O'Reilly know what I'm talking about. We'll do it live. Hey, Bill was in his day. Bill was great at TV. No question about it. Uh, I got respect for the guy's TV skills. Harry writes, hey, Buck, it occurs to me. What's the number of Maisie Hirono's Senate bill ordering a fleet of clipper ships and their sailors that will be needed to supply everything to Hawaii, including tourists? Shields high. Harry. Harry, I have no idea what you're talking about, my man. So, you know, you know stuff that I don't know. I, I got nothing for you on the Maisie Hirono bill. Kristen, not to be confused with Kirsten. There are a couple of keto ice creams that might be uh, good to support your show. Glad to support your show. Wink and Rebel are the names. Wink is also vegan for those who care. You know what? I will check those out, Kristen. I'd love to rep some keto ice cream here on the show. And that reminds me, if you are a, a business owner, if you have a product, uh, if you want to be a part of our sponsorships here on the show, you can reach out to me via Facebook. We've actually had some sponsors, some ad campaigns that come in that way, where once we do a little due diligence on you, get to know you a little bit, get to know your product, we're, we're happy to partner up with folks. So I know there's a lot of uh, business owners that listen to this show across the country. And if you're looking for a national level spot, you know, just reach out and we'll, we'll get it going and get, get crack a lacking. Uh, we sell very, very well on this show in terms of the products we represent because we represent really great products. And those of you who have ever had a concern or a question about a sponsor in the past know that I, I respond very quickly and I've taken concerns all the way up to the very top of the food chain. I've, I've forwarded emails to me or Facebook messages to me about a product directly to the CEO of a company if I think it's merited. So that's that we have real partnerships here. These are not companies that I don't know who they are, or what they do, who runs it, none of that stuff. David writes, hey, Buck, why don't we ever hear about how Chavez stole billions of dollars and how his daughter transferred all that money out of the country and then she uh, and then she left the country as a billionaire? I'm sure the Venezuelans could use that money. I guess Bernie thinks it's okay. All right, later. Doc. 
Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, this is what always happens in these so-called socialist paradises. The people in charge just loot the country, just steal, steal and steal some more. And when you point that out, you're told that you're being a Yankee imperialist or that you're being unfair to the socialist revolutionary credentials or whatever. But yes, uh, it is true that the Chavez family are billionaires and you would be hard pressed to show me a country where you have a, a socialist and a strong man and and w- where you don't have a situation that the looting has occurred. It, it, it always socialism and strong man goes together like looting and and carrots or something. You know what I you know what I was you know what I was going for. Uh, Rob, right. But great show. Truly love it. Rob show loves you. I think the Democratic Party is at war on two fronts, the Green New Deal, far left crazies and the conservatives who want truth and life. Where does that leave them? They are neither communist nor conservative. How do we get to this point where communism is at our door? God save America. Pray for our president, whom I trust. Shields high for our president. He is anointed. Uh, Well, you know, you're right about the Green New Deal. And I I think you're right also about the fundamental schism in this country. So we need to fight. And uh, I, I think that we are in for a very, very important and it's going to be quite a contest going into 2020. Bill writes, your Trey Gowdy does sound, sound like Bill Cosby. Well, Trey Gowdy likes jello pudding pops. Maybe I, maybe I should just transfer over my Trey Gowdy to being a Bill Cosby and then you guys will like it. Like jello pudding and wearing big sweaters. Then, writes, Buck, since you like pistachio, I thought I was going to ask you what you thought of Spumoni ice cream. However, since you've never even heard of Neapolitan, I suppose it's a moot point. It's like I don't even know you anymore. Whoa, whoa, Van, buddy. Okay, it is true. I don't know what Spumoni is. And you know what? Right here on air, I'm finding out right now. It is a molded gelato with different colors and flavors, usually containing candied fruits and nuts. Whoa, Van, let me tell you something, buddy. You keep your candied fruit and nut ice cream to yourself, all right? None of that. I, do. I don't like nuts in my ice cream. I don't like nuts in my brownies. Keep them out of there, all right? I, that's just... And fruit? What are you putting, putting raisins? Ugh, raisins and ice cream? Get out of here with that nonsense. But Van, you like pistachio, so we can still be friends. Team, we're going to shut down the show for today, but it'll be back in action tomorrow. I will be talking to you on Monday. Shields high. Hiring used to be hard. All kinds of job sites, stacks of resumes, confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy, and you only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. I have used ZipRecruiter in hiring colleagues of mine now at the Hill, and we've gotten fantastic people, and we got them in the first week we used ZipRecruiter. That's how easy it was. Try it for yourself. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. One more time, ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. 80% of employers who post in ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in the first day because ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire.